wow, I got a call back. This is great. It's a good sign, right? Okay. Um, I, so, in, in certain um, wings of the church historically, there's this, been this popular thing called the altar call. Are you familiar with this? This language? Yeah. You guys do this regularly? Daniel leads? Okay. Um, so, I've never done one, but I thought it'd be fun to, I'm preaching in a different church, let's try this out, let's see how this works. And I thought I'd do it a little bit different, and I do it at the beginning of the sermon, so there's less pressure in the rest of the sermon to perform. So we're just going to try this, so if you would indulge me, every eye closed. Every eye closed, no one looking around. I just want you to answer this question honestly. Have you ever, no, no one's looking, children included, every eye closed. Have you ever been annoyed by your own children? Just raise your hand. Every eye closed. Thank you. Be honest. My hand's up. Okay. I don't mind admitting it. Okay. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Keeping every eye closed. Have you ever been annoyed by anyone else's children? More hands. Okay. That's good. Thank you. You can put those down. Now, just because I know there are children present and I want to be fair, I wasn't planning this question, but every eye closed. Have you ever been annoyed by your parents? Okay, a few hands up. Okay, thank you. You can, you can all open your eyes. Appreciate that. It's my first, wasn't really an altar call, but it's similar genre. Yeah. So I've got three children of my own, and um, they're, they're ages eight and, and five, although the five-year-old's more developmentally closer to two, and then another two-year-old. So we're kind of right in the thick of it, and, um, and my, I find myself getting really short-tempered, really, really easily annoyed by my own children, and it, and it really bothers me. And, um, and I think getting into Matthew 18, getting into this passage has, has helped give some perspective, because I'm reminded um, that a lot of the times that I find myself getting a bit short-tempered or a bit annoyed, I'm, I'm trying to do something um, really important, like prepare a sermon that I'm supposed to be giving later that morning. Um, and <laughs> and my, children, my children are getting louder and louder and louder. And, and I think when I stop and, and can kind of get some perspective, I realize you know what they want. They want my attention. Is that so wrong? They want my attention. They want daddy to see this. They want daddy to hear this. And all three of them want it at once. And if one of them wants it, then the other one, then the, and so on and so forth. And, and I think just being in, in ministry and even my own life and experience is that I realize that so much of the stuff that, that gets us kind of messed up as we get older it, and sometimes can go right back to those childhood moments where I just, want, I just want my mommy to notice me. I want my daddy to notice me. I want him to see, um, see me. I want him to see me. I want him to say words to me. And um, I've been moved over the last few years and, and really want to see it as our children get older at the table and they're all pretty, you know, my daughter's among the oldest, so um, we, don't have, we really don't have kind of middle school age and, and high school age children yet, but they're slowly getting older. Um, 
but I'm really interested at the table as our children get older and have these rites of passage. Um, I'm really trying to encourage, and we do this at baptism already, um, but I'm trying to encourage the dads in our community to, to have formal blessings of our children at key points as they get older. And, and it, obviously it's as important for moms to do this, but just knowing that our culture, historically, that we've kind of lost the voice of the father uh, for so many of our kids and so many of us who are my age or young, a little bit younger, a little bit older, is that we, we've grown up missing this voice. I know I did. I've missed that voice since I was 10 years old. And what a difference that must make. You know, sometimes we don't always realize it. But we're craving the affection, we're craving the attention, even maybe still in our 30s and 40s, of our moms and dads, and maybe in a lot of cases more our dads than our moms. And so, and so I just tried to look at uh, Matthew 18, just especially the first six verses, through that particular lens. What is Jesus saying here about the importance of, not just the importance of children, but identifying with them in our own desires, in our own hopes for greatness and fame and all these things, right? So I just want to jump in um, with, with that. I'm, I'm a pastor's kid, and I have, these, I have these embarrassing memories of probably being my daughter's age and just making a complete fool of myself at the children's moment because my dad was up there doing it. And um, just having this, like, it's embarrassing to look back at now, but I know it must have been because I was so excited that it was my dad who was up in front in charge of the church, and I could just be goofy in front of him. I'm sure it just, like, just killed my dad, like it does me when my daughter last week was doing the chicken dance up at the um, children's moment, and we had to have a talk afterwards. But it's like, okay, she's excited that I'm up there and I'm her dad, and that's important to acknowledge. So at the time, at that time, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And all of us good Bible readers, all of us good Christians say, oh, those disciples, oh, they're always looking to who's going to be the greatest. And oh, they're so bad, those guys. But I want to think about this question at least in three, three ways to look at it, three settings. And one is in this fresh setting of understanding this this tension between um, suffering and glory, because it's come up in the last few chapters, as I'm sure you've noticed over the last few weeks, that Jesus just kind of dropped a big bomb on them, not a, not a chapter or two ago. He said, because they're all excited, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're going to be the king, and we're all your best friends, and this is great, and this is awesome. And Jesus says to them, yeah, but guess what? I'm going to be handed over to the powers that be, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And that's probably all they heard. They probably didn't hear all rides again on the third day. All that's an important part of it. And so, and they've heard this twice now. Um, and it says that the disciples were, were, were saddened by this. You can imagine that this is very confusing. This is very complicated for them. They're trying to kind of reconcile this amazing miracle worker, amazing teacher. He's got to be the one. He's God's anointed. Yet on the other hand, why is he saying all this crazy stuff, this sad stuff? So maybe it's a question that makes sense in light of that. Okay, look, if we're going to follow you, if we're going to save our life, if we're going to save our souls, you say 
we've got to deny ourselves, we've got to pick up our cross, we've got to lose our life, then how are we to understand greatness? Who's greatest in the, if this is true, who is greatest in the kingdom? Okay, that's one way to understand the question. I think that probably a legitimate one. Here's another way. Okay, Jesus has just predicted his own death twice. He's not going to be around much longer. There's going to be a leadership vacuum, right? Who's second in command? Who's, who's vice Jesus? Right? It's a practical question. Who's going to take over this movement when you're, if it's really true that you're on your way, this is part of the plan, then we, we need, we kind of need a blueprint going forward. We need a rollout plan here. Who's, I mean, is it going to be Peter? He's kind of the obvious choice. He's always with you. He's the loudest of the bunch. Is it James? Is it John? Someone else? Who's it going to be? So I think it's another way, maybe a legitimate way to say, who's the greatest? I think a third way is thinking about who Matthew's writing for this for in the early church. Because one of the big themes of the gospel is that it's written in a way to try to understand Jesus' ongoing presence in the community and how are we to function? How do we recognize when Jesus is present to us? Because there's lots of ways maybe to claim Jesus' authority. There's lots of ways to claim authority and leadership and greatness. And so maybe this is a really helpful question for the early church to identify, okay, who are the leaders among us? Who's the greatest? How are we as Jesus people to measure and aim for greatness, both for our community as we function, but also just what are we to aim for, just in our own following Jesus, in our own discipleship? I think it's a question that makes most of us uncomfortable if we were really to ask it. Is it an appropriate question for the church? How do we become great? Right? Sounds like uh, it's more of a um, televangelist genre or um, reality TV show genre of a question. It's not something appropriate for us to ask. We don't want to be great. Right? And I just want to read something from C.S. Lewis, who's one of those thinkers. He wrote this nice little essay called The Weight of Glory. It's really good. If you can get your hands on it, I recommend it. And he has the same problem with the question of greatness um, because it, he came across this idea of glory or f- this idea of fame in the Bible, and he said, well, that, that doesn't fit. Um, but the more he looked into it, the more he realized, no, they're really talking about, really talking about fame. He says this. Um, Not fame conferred by our fellow creatures, fame with God, approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable of the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Remember when Jesus said that? With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Like it's put there by God, this desire to be recognized, appreciated, praised. It feels wrong to say that sometimes. Like, really, are 
our goal as humans is to be praised? No, we're supposed to not be praised. Like, well, no. This is part of the good creation. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently, what I had mistaken for humility and all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before his father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. Much of the New Testament is filled with this promise of glory, and I think most of us in the church don't know what to do with it. We don't use that word very often, everyday speech. We think that we're not supposed to seek out glory. But yet, it's this prominent promise, Matthew to Revelation, for those who follow him faithfully. And then Jesus' parable that C.S. Lewis refers to, that we would stand at the end before the creator, the one who can slay thousands with just his voice, the powerful one, the holy one, the almighty one, and that we might stand before him and be inspected by this holy, terrifying, amazing God creator and be spoken to and said, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. That that's a good desire in us. This idea that greatness, that fame is a good thing to desire because it's planted in there by God, that those aren't the idols. Those actually aren't the problem. They're good and whole desires that get very quickly and easily distorted, right? So the idols are the things that we try to fulfill those big, powerful, holy desires that are not God, right? So I'm s- so as much as we might want to say, oh, I don't need fame, I don't need glory, I don't need this, I don't need that. I think we're tricking ourselves, we're deluding ourselves because we're created for it on the one hand. But we're still, even if we say that to ourselves, we're still really going to look for it because that's the way we're created. And it's going to come out sideways, right? So we're going to look for it in all sorts of weird and inappropriate ways. Ways that overlap with the great things that we do. Whether, as Daniel brought up the, uh, the examples this morning, whether we're great at creating stuff with our hands, we have amazing voices, we can make music, we um, can design buildings, we can, um, we're really good at math. Whatever it is, that becomes the thing by which we can get this fame. We can get this glory for ourselves. And then almost certainly we kill the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing that God has given us. So Jesus calls a child to himself and he sets him before them and he says, truly I say to you, unless you're converted, you're changed, and you become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting that he chooses a child because probably a little bit different, although there's a lot of overlap with, with our culture. I think the emphasis here is on low status. 
It's still kind of true. No power, no authority, no recognition, often given no say in almost anything whatsoever. (laughs) Become like that. And again, I think we see kind of this, um, this horizontal concern. Like, you're not looking, you're not going to get satisfaction from trying to fulfill these big, amazing, audacious desires with your neighbors. They're not, they're not going to do it for you. It's not going to happen. You're just going to get disappointed. So, here's a tip. Empty out your status. It doesn't matter. You're not going to find it there anyway. But, to the point, Jesus doesn't, doesn't look at them and say, Yo, you're looking for the wrong thing. Don't look for greatness in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't exist. He's conceding the question. Yeah, of course. But it's measured very, very differently. And it, I think the, the trick with, this, with, with what Jesus is, is saying here is that I, I think he's really saying it's going to be completely unrecognizable here. Because as soon as everyone recognizes, like, oh, if um, I sign up to do this thing at church that is the kind of the lowest position, then um, that's good for me because, um, because it's not about having glory in front of others. It's about having glory of God. Well, now that's going to become the position that everyone recognizes in the church. Like, oh, that's the glory position, right? So now let's all sign up for that thing. Right? Okay, well, now that's changed, and now that's the status thing. And so now you have to look, okay, well, what's the thing now? It's always going to be the thing that nobody recognizes. You have to find the thing. What is, what is the thing that I want to consider is beneath me? It, it's, it's a kind of a waste of my talents. I don't want to set up chairs. I should be preaching. Right? Obviously. <laughs> Where are the things that challenges me? To serve in ways that that I might be tempted to think is beneath my dignity. Unrecognizable. What's empty of status and position doesn't give me any human popularity points or recognition. And this is tricky in the church because now if everyone's helping set up chairs downstairs, everyone's going to know, oh, you're just trying to do that thing. I'm recognizing it. Remember that whole, the Sermon on the Mount? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I think there's that emphasis on, be creative with your service. I think Jesus' emphasis is on, be so overflowing with this desire to serve and don't find your need to find this glory among one another because you're satisfied with, with what your Heavenly Father is saying over you and declaring to you. You don't need to get it from one another. But getting back to our experience as children and our own experience with with our own children or other people's children, these questions of recognition and appreciation are deeply tied to our personal meaning and our sense of significance. Again, I think it's the way that we were wired. Will what I've done and who I am be recognized? particular way that I'm created will it be meaningful will it be appreciated will it make a difference am I important how do I know how can I measure it 
we're always striving for this. Not primarily because we're wicked, but because we're wired for it. And C.S. Lewis is, is reminding us that we need to get that recognition from God. Do you ever meditate? Do you have an imagination for God appreciating you and delighting in you in the way that he made you specifically and just resting in that and enjoying it? I think we're supposed to. I think that's a part of worship. We were made for that. So it is not, as I've been saying probably too many times by now, at root a wicked desire in us to be recognized and appreciated and praised. It's a good desire planted there by our creator who loves to delight in us. Nevertheless, it's a desire that often gets disordered into pride, into arrogance, into this grasping for this meaning and significance. And so we could probably not have to think too hard in our culture about what idols <laughs> these start to they go all over the place, right? We, we look for this stuff in all sorts of weird ways. Seeking out human recognition, human position and power, titles, honor, all that stuff. And it's not even so much that those things are bad. It's that it's, I think, when we use those as a way to kind of live out of, you know, this is who I am. This is my meaning. This is my significance. I think it's where we get into trouble because what happens when those things go away? And we don't mean anything? We get stuck? Henry Nouwen wrote a nice little uh, devotional called Out of Solitude, and it's really nice because it has pictures and blank pages and double-spaced large font. So, and I think he probably did that on purpose because the whole point of the book is not trying to accomplish anything. It's receiving from God. He talks about the scoreboards we keep in our hearts of all of our accomplishments and all our successes that boost our sense of self and feed our very identity. So he gives the example of being called up on stage and someone kind of giving out our resume of all of our accomplishments and that that tells us who we are. And now one challenges us to break away from the world of the scoreboards where we depend on the recognition of others for our own identity and meaning. He calls us to solitude where we're left in the presence of God and we hear from him his estimation of us. We're reminded of the gospel We're reminded of our value that is determined by God and not by others. Where we can hear a word from the living God and we can hear pardon for our own failures and we can hear his love for us. It's the importance of solitude, of breaking away from all the measures of the world around us. So the world has its own way of measuring these things. Power, control, over resources, over others, um, labels of position, well-known by the most amount of people, American Idol. But God measures worth and meaning through a very different way. He gives power by his by his own authority. He gives it to whom he desires through his spirit. 
and he desires to give it. I think he gives position through the way that he names us and renames us. And popularity is defined by being known by God. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 when Jesus says at the end, everyone's going to come and say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. And what does he say? Remember? I never knew you. That's the worst. At the end, popularity is going to be um, important in the, insofar as we're popular with God, that God knows us. He's seen us. Whoever humbles himself is this child. He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. You know, for all those who say the Old Testament is a God that's angry and vengeance, and the new one has this Jesus who's just sort of rubbery and happy and doesn't say a mean thing, it's, you haven't read the New Testament, right? We've got some pretty stiff warnings here about what we do. I don't think Jesus, I think the rest of the chapter makes this clear. He's not just talking about protecting kids. He's talking about protecting those who take on the status of a child, who take on this, humble themselves in this way, in the community. We overlook those. We cause them to stumble. We don't think much of them. We say words over them that aren't true. I just want to end with just an encouragement to take this chapter this week because we only got through the first, barely even really got through the first six verses, but they kind of set the tone um, and, and they're in line with Matthew's whole gospel, but read the rest of this chapter this week and just kind of keep some of these themes that we've talked about this morning and, and just see how they connect, continue to connect. Find solitude. Find a place to be by yourself in God's presence and just meditate on his delight in you. And that he has, he's not looking at your good works, the, the cool things you do with music or your hands or, or the, the, how awesome you raise your children and all those things as the, me, as the oh, I'm, I'm, this makes me happy. He, he loves you and he's happy He's happy when you are in his presence. And he creates you to do those good works. And I think when we have that right relationship with God and we can find our delight in that spot, then it frees us up in those good works not to feel like, oh, is this good enough? Does this make me good enough? It just allows that to be worship. Like, here you go. Here's, here's my offering to you. Daddy, I know you see it. I just want to end with um, 
the second part of this, this Lewis passage. And then I'll pray. I'm not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. Doesn't that sound nice? There will be no room for vanity then. She'll be free from the miserable illusion that it's her doing. With no taint of what we would now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride deeper than Prospero's Burke, which just means really, really deep. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. It is not for her to bandy compliments with her sovereign. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, that face, which is the light or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise. Almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Father, we give you thanks for the permission to delight in you, for permission to clamor for your attention, to want you to see this or that. God, would you teach us to become like children in this way, to be so lost on you that Everything else just is, um, yeah, reoriented, recalibrated, relativized to the importance of what you think of us and what you speak to us. God, would you give this community here ears to hear your words of delight and pleasure? Would you gift this community here to lose itself in you and to let all these other things by which we seek to measure our worth and our goodness just let them fall off of us 
we bless you and we thank you that this is the Father you seek to be for us, that delights in being with his children, seeing them work and play. We bless you and we thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.